Hello, welcome, and congratulations. You have picked a good one. This is It Happened Here. <laughs> that little intro comes to you from my very dear friend, Corin, as part of my ongoing efforts to skip introducing this podcast myself, because I never know what to say. So thanks for saving us all from my awkwardness, Karen. And since we're on thanks, I'm going to start with my two shiny new patrons. It Happened Here has a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash it happened here. Patreon is a platform where friends of the show pledge direct support of their own hard-earned cash to help me keep doing this magic podcasting thing. In exchange, they get things like a shout-out and bonus content. If you're a patron listening, you'll be pleased to hear that the first patron-requested case will be up next week, exclusively for you, and that's the Modimole monster, Johan Kotzer, requested by the wicked and wonderful Megan. And we have two new Patreon members, Calvin Copeling and Helen Pierce. Calvin and Helen, thank you so much for supporting IHH. I am so, so grateful. If you don't want to or can't support the show in that way, that's totally cool. Please just listen and enjoy. And if you really like what I'm putting out into the world, maybe consider sharing an episode with someone you think could be into this weird little mix of crime and culture and snark. But now, our feature presentation. This is episode 13, The Abduction and Murder of Jade Paniotu. Today we're traveling to Tkobecha and Karicha. The latter is a little inland town tucked up behind and basically incorporated into Tkobecha, which is on the southeast coast of South Africa. Both of these towns were recently renamed, so for a lot of South African listeners, they're still thought of as Uteneg, which became Karicha, and Port Elizabeth, or PE, which became Tkobecha. Karicha is so close to Tkobecha that it is actually administered under the same local government, specifically the Nelson Mandela Metropolitan Municipality. In this episode, you'll hear me talk about Karicha, Kabecha, and Tkabecha. Sorry about that. Them's just the names. I'll try to enunciate as clearly as possible. For international listeners, this practice of renaming places has been an ongoing project in South Africa since the end of apartheid, and it seeks to essentially remove the vestiges of a pretty rotten past, including things named after apartheid and colonial leaders. Kabecha Park is a suburb of Kabecha, with easy access to both town and the routes out towards Karicha. It's a little north and west of the CBD, and the perfect spot for a young couple like the Paniatus. Jade Paniatu worked as a teacher at Reba College, a school in Karicha, and her husband Christopher was an entrepreneur with a few shops and a sort of pub nightclub in Kabecha to his name. On the morning of April 21st, 2015, at around 6.30am, Cherie Swanepoel had just pulled up to the Stalin Glen townhouse complex on Deacon Road. It's an area full of little complexes, neat, boxy townhouses in face brick and cream. Cherise is there to pick up Jade, since they both work at Rebeck College. 
This is a daily routine for them, to carpool to the school together, each taking turns to drive on alternating weeks. When it was her turn to drive, Sharice would send Jade a text when she left home and Jade would walk the short distance through the complex to the main gate to wait for her. And the morning of the 21st started just like that. Sharice texted to say that she was on her way via a petrol station first, but would be right there. Because it was drizzling that day, Sharice asked if she should drive into the complex, but Jade replied that she would just come out and wait despite the rain. When Sharice got to the Stellan Glen gates, however, there was no sign of Jade. So she sent her a text via WhatsApp saying she'd arrived, but the text didn't deliver. She tries to call Jade and gets her voicemail immediately, like you do when your phone is switched off. Next, Cherise tries to call the landline, but thinks better of it, cancelling the call quickly. She didn't want to wake Chris, who usually works late and is often sleeping in when Jade leaves. But still, there's no Jade at the gate, so Cherise decides to call Chris's cell anyway and wake him. He's confused by her questioning about Jade, replying, What do you mean? She's gone to work. Charisse explains, and Chris gets up and lets her in. By the time she pulls up to their house inside the complex, he's waiting for her, looking worried and saying, Something's not right. He climbs into her car so that they can drive around and look for Jade in the area around the complex. Back on the road, they see a police vehicle and decide to stop and explain the situation before carrying on with their recce of the area. But there's just no sign of Jade. And by the time they circle back to the complex, the police are there waiting. Things are starting to feel very real and serious. Jade isn't answering her phone, so Chris checks their online banking to see if there have been any transactions on her accounts and they both start calling relatives and friends. By 10am, Jade's sister, Tony Ings, has shared a photo of her sister online using hashtag findjade, which was trending on social within minutes. And soon, a massive search was underway, including the police flying squad and canine units. Some 200 police people were deployed, while Jade's family also got in on the search, roping in friends and volunteers to comb the surrounding areas. A police report went out with an image of a man taken from an ATM camera, reportedly while using Jade's credit card to withdraw money in the nearby Kwanobuchle township near Kuricha. But this was walked back by the police, who asked the public to stop sharing the image, as they may be dealing with a kidnapping, claiming A, it was unverified, and B, it may actually put her at greater risk. A reward of 150,000 rand is posted for any information that could lead to finding her. All day and into the night, neighbours will hear the wailing of sirens and the thump of the police helicopters. But there are no more actionable updates coming through, at least not to the public. The next morning, 22nd April, it starts anew as the sun rises. The police find a stolen and abandoned Mazda 323 that they think may have been used in the abduction. 
and everyone's social feeds are saturated with hashtag findjade. But within a few hours, the PE Herald, a local newspaper, breaks the news. A body has been found in a field near Kwanobuchle. Jade's body has been found. There are some press images out there, not of the body, thankfully, although I honestly didn't go looking for those types of images for this case. So maybe those are out there and I just didn't see them. But what I was going to say is that there are photos of Jade's family on a dirt road adjacent to the field, taken at pretty much the moment they heard the news. And the one that cuts deep, no matter how many times I see it, is of Tony, Jade's sister, sitting on the ground, her head in her hands, clearly devastated. The search is over, but the investigation is just beginning. Even with signs of robbery, police begin again by looking at who Jade was, and I think we need to do the same. Jade was just 28 and had married Chris two years prior in 2013. They had actually been together since 2004. She was, as I have said, a teacher and a favourite among the junior classes that she taught at the high school. She was not just a Rearbeck College teacher, but had been a pupil there too, and many of the staff had known her for decades. The effect of her death was profoundly felt at the school, by colleagues and students. There is still a tributes page up on their website, filled with pictures of Jade and notes to her from friends and kids. I want to read just one of them, from Yolanda Mni, who was head girl of the school in 2015. She spoke at a memorial that they held on the 25th and said, quote, We gathered here today to celebrate the life of Mrs. Paniatu and everything that she stood for. Everyone knew her as an unbelievable woman who dedicated her life to her passions, which were people and animals. Her generous, gentle and brave nature was and will always be an inspiration to us all. I am sure that everyone will agree that her beauty shone from the inside out, and we know that what we say about dynamite coming in small packages was true of her. Integrity exploded out of Mrs. Paniatu. End quote. Yolanda is not the only person to use that description of Jade, dynamite in a small package. And even though it is a bit of a cliche, I personally love it. Speaking on behalf of all short, feisty women out there, I'm going to go ahead and say that that's a good one and can stay. Reading the recollections of her from work colleagues, you quickly get a sense of Jade as someone who was full of fun who liked to clown around and make others laugh, but also someone who was always ready to listen to her peers and students. Jade had no conflicts with anyone and no skeletons in her closet, so maybe her death was just what it seemed, a robbery gone wrong. It's certainly not uncommon in South Africa. The grainy footage from the ATM was released to the press again, this time with an appeal for information. And the whole case may have stalled there, like so many local crimes do. But the downside of a small town, for criminals at least, is that secrets are hard to keep. And an informant had rung the cops with a big one. 
an allegation that was very close to home. As a result, the cops had brought in two more secret keepers for questioning, Lutando Sioni, who worked as a bouncer at Chris's club, and his girlfriend, Babalwa Breakfast. It was Babalwa who cracked first, giving the cops enough to arrest Lutando and turn up the heat. That and the big gym bag of cash he had on him were making it pretty hard to pretend that everything was hunky-dory. Lutando, being clearly an asshole but not a complete dum-dum, struck a deal and spilled the beans, offering up his co-conspirators. And the one thing that had been so evidently missing up until now, a real motive, in fact, a combo deal of two of the oldest motives in the book, greed and infidelity. So let's go back to the side of the road outside Stellan Glen, where Jade was waiting for her friend like any other day. Three men were waiting on that road too that morning. They pulled up alongside Jade and forced her at gunpoint into the trunk of their car before screeching away. Had they shot and robbed her right there, perhaps this would have looked more like the armed robbery it was supposed to be, the armed robbery Chris had hoped it would be interpreted as. Because while he was sleeping in their marriage bed at home, or perhaps pretending to sleep, who knows, three men were carrying his terrified wife away at his orders. I know marriage bed is a pretty old-fashioned term, but it also conveys something for me beyond a bed that a couple sleeps in. Maybe I'm alone in this, but there is something in that term that speaks to intimacy and trust. That's why I think it feels like maybe not more of a betrayal if your partner is cheating and they're screwing someone in your bed while you're away, but it just gives that extra sting to the betrayal somehow, an extra slap in the face, that it was your bed where you rest, your safe space. So him lying there, her side of the bed still cooling while this is going down, it just turns my stomach. So who is today's trash bag husband, Christopher Paniatu? Chris had grown up in Kuricha. His dad was an immigrant from Cyprus who came to Tlobecha as a teen and owned and ran a shop called Bambi Snack Bar. And Chris essentially followed in his footsteps, opening a small grocer that was later part of the OK Grocer's stable, as well as the aforementioned nightclub called Infinity. I know that clubs tend to have awful names, but can we appreciate for a second Infinity? God help us, that sounds exactly like the kind of place you go to be sexually harassed by someone with an unreasonably unbuttoned shirt. Which is exactly the sartorial vibe that sleazeball Chris projects into the world. On the surface though, like they often do, Chris seemed like a good guy. He came from a tight-knit family, just like Jade's. And he had that young entrepreneurial vibe starting his own business while studying and then growing it from there. But scratch below the surface, just a little, and it was clear that Chris's businesses were not thriving, and he was in debt. One big expense on the books, one that Jade never knew about, was Chris's long-time mistress, Chanel Coots. 
Chanel worked at the OK Grocer that Chris owned, and she and Chris had started hooking up before he even proposed to Jade. She stayed his main side chick throughout their marriage. They'd spend nights together in hotels when Chris was supposed to be working late, and yes, she was sleeping in Jade's bed whenever Jade was away. Their affair was apparently common knowledge among their co-workers, which just grates my tits, honestly. At some point, Chris's dad, Costa, even learned of the affair and threatened to disinherit his son if he didn't break it off. Reportedly, Chris's parents adored Jade. Chris, being the stand-up guy he was, told his dad he ended things. But this was just another lie. While Chris was pretty frugal at home with his wife, he bought his mistress fancy handbags and gave her large cash gifts frequently. And frankly, he couldn't afford it. In 2015, he was applying for a massive loan to keep his head above water, some 2.2 million rand. Knowing that he wouldn't be able to make payments on the loan, Chris apparently decided his way out was to rid himself of Jade. That's when he turned to Lutando and asked him to find someone who could kill Jade, offering him some 70,000 rand to split between himself and a hitman. Suitably incentivized, Lutando in turn found Suzuizake Vumazonke, and he roped in Senatemba Nanembe and Zolani Sebeko. We don't know a ton about these men, but we do know that Senatemba had killed at least one other person, 78-year-old Denise Weber, also in 2015. Suzuizake also had a record. At the time of Jade's murder, he was out on bail while awaiting trial for armed robbery of a bottle store, or liquor store, I think Americans call them, I think. He'd also served time in 2011 for theft and possession of a stolen firearm. I couldn't find much on Zolani, just a few vague references to previous convictions and an outstanding warrant. These were the three men outside Stellan Glen that morning. They bundled Jade into the boot of the car, and drove her out to a field before shooting her three times, twice in the back and once in the head. Then they robbed her corpse of a few basic valuables and left her out in the field. In all likelihood, she was dead before the alert even hit social media 24 hours before. With Lotando singing like a beefy bouncer bird, police have almost everything they need. Almost. But they don't want to leave anything to chance, and so they send Lotando out to meet Chris with a wire in his car. They want to get him on tape, admitting his part in the murder for hire of his beautiful young wife. The full recording is about nine minutes. It's on YouTube, and that link is in my source in the show notes. The quality isn't great but I think we can still suffer through the sound of a couple of minutes for the chance to hear this fuckwit reveal himself. Anna, what is it? Somebody said something. Yeah. Was it like a murder thing? I was not like a robot or something. But that's what I said to you. It became a kidnapping and then a murder instead of just making it a a robbery outside the house. They went to search your house, says Yonda. Says what? You see. But there's nothing there. Oh, there's nothing. No, so stop stressing. 
it's just the love one eventually it's just Yes, but it's because of them, Andrew. They made it. They made it the way they did. They made it so big. But they've run away, eh? How many of them? I don't. I, I, I already know Caesar. Eh? Yes. In, in half an hour, I'm gonna phone the investigating officer. He was at my house now. Now that's why I can't talk to you all the time. And my uncle is all around me. So I'm gonna tell him that um, he came to see me. He wanted to borrow money because. People took you for questioning for steroids. Yeah. You need to go hide in Jeffries for a while yeah. and keep quiet. So you're going to stop nothing. Eh? Yeah. But I can't do anything now. I'm under investigation. So I can't just give over money all the time. So yeah. don't worry. Me and Sianda will talk. Yeah. Okay? Are you, are you going to hide out that side in Jeffries? Yeah, I'm going to stay while okay? I'm going to do some safety. So I'm going to say you're going, you must destroy your phone now, eh? Yeah. And the SIM card, and I'm going to say you told me you're going to East London. It's fine. So you stay going to East London? Yes. Okay. 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 Yeah, I'm going to be okay as long as they never know about us, Tandle. Yeah. I never, ever, I only ever helped you with the gym. I never did anything with you. I'll sort out your family. You hide low, okay? Okay, sure. You need to be gone for a few months till this thing calms down. This thing's cost me a lot of money. The family's also looking at me. So that's yes. Yeah. Okay. It's not a little no, because these boys made it big. I told you to let them do it outside the house and take the bags and the rings, and then they didn't take the watch or anything. They just left everything. They just left everything there. You see, so it looks like a hit now. So they are after me, and that's why I can't meet you just like this in front of people, Tando. Okay. okay. Don't find and don't SMS me. They're watching yeah. the SMSs because you said the reason that you uh, SMSs you don't reply. And then me at the other side, I'm hiding. And I know, but you need to give me time. So from now on, you just give me one missed call on this number, first time, and never again. Don't ever phone me or SMS me to this number because they are listening to us. Now, yeah. Well, yes, I put it off. Okay. But you. No, but they listen. When you're talking on the phone, they're listening. That's why I have to report this now. Okay. All right, I'm going to say going to East London. Okay. And that, finally, is enough. On April 30th, just over a week since Jade's death, Chris is arrested along with Lotando. Two days before his arrest, Chris was speaking at Jade's funeral, extolling his love for her in front of her grieving family with a eulogy that, I might add, was plagiarised straight off the internet because he's classy like that. And look, I'm the first to criticise police when they fail to discharge their duties, but I'll also acknowledge that that is some pretty sharp police work. Chris's first appearance in court is May 4th, and he pleads not guilty, claiming that the police pressured Lutando into incriminating him. He is in court again on June 5th and is denied bail. The case is then postponed again. I'm not sure what it's like in the rest of the world, but this kind of stop-start pattern for cases seems to be par for the course in South African courts, so I don't get too hung up on the dates. Siswazako first appears in court on May 5th, having been arrested just two days earlier. I must add that at his appearance, he has clearly been beaten badly. He tells the court that this was at the hands of police, while they say he was resisting arrest and tried to run before being 
essentially tackle to the ground, hitting his head? Sisva's story is best told now, as a little aside, because it is alleged that he is the one who pulls the trigger. But in essence, this doesn't go through the full test of trial, because Sisvazakwa dies under rather mysterious circumstances while the case is ongoing. The National Prosecuting Authority, or NPA, confirms that he died in hospital on the 7th of September 2016. That's about 16 months after his arrest. And they say at the time that they are awaiting toxicology report to determine cause of death. I don't and won't condone police brutality. Additionally, even if you personally give rocks for the welfare of this man, I'm sure that we can at least agree that he should have seen his day in court, so to speak. I think there's more to be said about the state's duty of care to those in custody. Yes, even the guilty. But I honestly don't have the spoons for it right now. Anyway, I'm jumping around in time here a little bit. Bear with me, please. Back in 2015, Lotando, as we know, turned state witness and appeared in court on May 7th. But he is later reclassified by the court as a hostile witness when he recants his confession that Chris was behind the whole thing. In fact, the story of Lutando is ongoing. It seems that at some point he goes on the lam, but is eventually taken into custody again in 2018. He is still, three years later, in custody and awaiting trial. He no longer enjoys the privileges of being a state's witness and will face the full charges against him. But in May 2021, his case was postponed again and I've not found anything more up-to-date than that. Sinatemba is charged on October 30th, 2015. He was already in custody for that other murder that I mentioned. And finally, midway into 2016, Zolani is arrested. The bulk of the trial happens in late 2016 and 2017, and the state's evidence also includes a whack of cell phone data showing not just communication between all of the men, but also their locations corresponding with the scene of the abduction and the murder. Jade's family have to sit through months of excruciating details, including the testimony of Chanel the sidepiece Coots. Finally, on November 2nd, 2017, Chris is found guilty of murder alongside Senatemba and Zolani. Jade's sister, Tony, and family hold their hands up in the Mockingbird salute from the Hunger Games as the verdict comes down. Chris has repeatedly and unsuccessfully tried to appeal his conviction. When I was doing the research for this piece, I searched for Jade's name on Facebook, and it hauled up one of my own posts from back in 2015. It was on the day that news broke that Chris had been arrested, I shared a news link to an article about it and said something like, yes, this still has to be tried in court, but it's a pertinent reminder that statistically the biggest threat to a woman's life in this country is her intimate partner. I do this kind of thing regularly, like far too regularly, because I am passionate about exposing crime myths and sharing facts about violence against women. Also, I like to give any trash left lurking in my Facebook friends list a chance to take itself out every now and then. 
Anyway, this post prompted a short thread of comments from friends, and rereading it today, I was struck by two comments, both from men saying, wait, there will be another twist, or he'll be vindicated by his day in court. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that to rag on these two guys. Not at all. They are not the trash I was joking about. Remember, it was early in the case, and we were all speculating. But it did remind me that many of the men in my life, in your life, essentially live a parallel existence to women. Likely, it is precisely because they are pretty good men who are seemingly not contemplating murdering a partner that their take was wait and see, while my gut feel was the husband did it. In November 2017, Tony Ings requested an opportunity to address the court and the guilty. Her speech is powerful and moving, and I want to end with a brief quote from it. She says, I no longer believe in heaven and hell. I believe that good and evil is here amongst us every day. It's the people we meet, the people we love, and the strangers we pass on the streets. Everyone screams, bring back the death penalty, but I do not wish death on you, because you do not deserve the peacefulness that death has to offer. I want you to know that we, mom, dad, and I, will never, ever forgive you. No matter how many people insist we must, and no matter how many years pass, the cowards sitting in this row here today will never be forgiven. I hope that you will experience the fear that Jade felt on her last morning every single day for the rest of your lives, while we finally get to celebrate the most beautiful person and cherish the memories we had with her. End quote. So how do I end this today? I guess I can only hope that Tony and the rest of Jade's family have as much peace today as they can have, and that they have had their chance to remember Jade before this happened to her, and to celebrate her, as Tony said. Thank you for listening to It Happened Here. Remember, you can find me and IHH on Instagram and Facebook. Please subscribe or follow the show on whatever platform you're using to listen to right now. It really helps me reach more people and hopefully keep growing IHH towards the ultimate goal of total world domination or maybe just covering my own expenses. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production. Written and presented by me, Kate Thompson-Davey.